0: Hey guys, today we have Isabel Young on the show. Isabel is a senior correspondent for Vice, and she her, her work revolves around uh, reporting and creating documentaries on some of the most pressing global issues, such as world conflicts, terrorism, mass detention, genocide, you name it. And I was fascinated by her recent works uh, around the Yemen Civil War, uh, around the machismo culture that is happening in Mexico, um, uh, her work in Xinjiang, China, where they have over a million Uyghurs that have been kept in detainment camps. And overall, we just have a great time discussing her lifestyle as a correspondent by going to these countries and a lot of the pressing issues that are being underreported in the world today. So, I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Isabel and I. If you guys are listening to this on the podcast, I uh, would love it if you guys would subscribe for more episodes in the coming weeks. And if you guys are watching this on YouTube, would love it if you hit the thumbs up. That would help us spread the message out to more people and to get this get this episode seen by more people around the world. So, thank you guys. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Isabel and I. Well, yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I've uh, been watching your Vice documentaries. Obviously, the thing that you're doing is going into these very oftentimes dangerous countries and cities, and you're interviewing these people live and really digging into their daily lives of how they're going about their day. And a lot of the times, you're, you're kind of in their faces. So with The things around coronavirus and this entire year that just took the world by the spiral how have you been able to manage documenting stuff and creating new content
1: yeah um it's been hard um i think that i've traveled the least amount of time i have traveled maybe ever but definitely in the Mm. last 10 years or so this year um and you know trying to be creative in terms of figuring out other ways to document things and getting other sources to help you document um, information and digging into open source investigative techniques. Um, and then also, you know, have actually been able to sneak around a little bit and um, do a few cool. uh, international um, stories. Well, I did one in Italy at the very beginning of the pandemic. I was in Mexico, um, uh, been in the U S quite a bit, actually, and, um, but it's um yeah it's definitely been a challenge. It's been very very strange this year.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Uh, I was in Mexico until up, up until like March, and I think there was about forty seven cases total then. And I just had a weird feeling of how bad it was going to be. Like AMLO, people that don't know, is the president was going around giving rallies around how people should still continue to hug each other and why people should still like meet with their families and to love one another and to, you know, it, it just, it was such a bad sign. I just saw it going for a bad turn, you know?
1: Yeah, it definitely didn't get any better. Um, I mean, Mexico was, was one of the hardest hits um, in the Americas. And it's still, I mean, given that it's, you know, a developing country and just doesn't have the infrastructure or the resources or the ability to just stop things, um you know people are still desperate to go out to work um and yeah the scenario just got worse and worse and it's been incredibly difficult for a lot of people there
0: yeah when when did you go down there to mexico
1: um i was there in i want to i want to say july but that might be wrong that sounds about right it's all
0: kind of a iffy. Um, and this year, of, and there's, yeah. there's
1: no such thing as time. Everything is just <laughs> in a vacuum of its own doom. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I was there at the, in the summer at some point. Um, and I was doing a story on, I mean, around the world, you know, domestic violence has sadly increased this year. Um, in a lot of different countries, we saw it first off in China, we saw it in other parts of Asia. Um, we've seen it in the US, we've certainly seen it in the UK um and and mexico was also a place where you know we've already got this issue of really rampant gender violence um which was only worsened since covid and people have been locked down in their homes and you know you're battling against your um your spouses and uh things have just got incredibly tense and so um in, yeah, in a country where, you know, femicide, which is where a, a woman is killed because she's a woman, are already incredibly high and gender violence and domestic violence is already really high. We've seen those numbers just skyrocket this year. So um, I was over there doing a story on that.
0: Yeah, I was actually there when there was this big protest that was happening. And this is back in February, I think. So mm-hmm. it was this rise of movement and there was like fires being like people were just it was, it was crazy because I think someone, mm. a woman did get killed uh, and it's, there is this like machismo culture that's been ingrained into the Mexican culture. Uh, I imagine that's what you were there and reporting and, and talking to some of the people down there. Like what were some of the things that you discovered?
1: Yeah, there's definitely, um, the, the machismo culture is real. Um, you know, I, I spoke to one of the guys that was, um, had been locked up for choking and smothering um, his wife. And, you know, he was just kind of like, well, this is just what we do. This is this is how it is. Um, so, I mean, that is one thing. And culturally, that's very difficult to obviously break. But then another thing is, you know, uh, there are other places where there is this machismo culture and, and you can break it because uh, you don't let them get away with it. Like, it's as simple as that. And the problem is there is so much impunity Um, going on in these sorts of cases. I think it's less than 5% of killers in Mexico get convicted of those crimes. And so you really need to implement a system where people know they're not going to get away with it. We spoke to someone who claimed to be a hitman, who, you know, a killer for hire. Um, And he was saying that he like does not worry. I mean, we weren't able to verify his story, I should say. But, you know, he was saying that if we're to believe him, um, that he doesn't have to worry at all about uh, being imprisoned or being punished in any way for the crimes that he alleges to commit um, because he knows that he can just bribe the police and he can bribe his way out of any sticky situation. So, you know, there's a lot to say for the systems themselves and the the government institutions. And and also this year, disturbingly, the government has cut funding to... um, Institutions that uh, help with uh, gender inequality and women's rights and gender violence, um, yeah. just because of you know the incredible pressures on the economy.
0: Right. So this this was something that was actually in one of your documentaries. You went up to a press conference where you confronted Amlo directly, and it didn't seem like he had much of an answer for you. I mean, it almost seems like he just was in denial completely, uh, and this is relatively recent. So, uh, I mean, what, what were the things that you were trying to? For people that don't know, what were you trying to things that you were trying to confront him about? And was there any results from what happened in the press conference?
1: No, well, I mean, yeah, you're right. Firstly, he really did not want to talk to me.
0: <laughs> yeah. No. You know, it's
1: funny because I actually came two days in a row you have to get up super early to get to these press conferences but he does do a presidential conference every morning um Mm -hmm. and so i went one morning i was there at 5 a.m got a good seat was like there just shoving my hands in the air every second and he was not catching my eye and I, you know, questionably avoiding me. And then I went the second day and the same thing happened. And he was literally just walking out and he was like, okay, thank you. We'll see you all tomorrow. Um, And I just stood up and started shouting my questions, Uh, which, you know, it it was, it was a moment of desperation because I I really did feel like, um, you know, a lot of the time, I think that uh, journalists who are heading in there to try and hold people accountable, um, are shut down and often targeted frankly in most press conferences um, and obviously i have an advantage because I'm coming from out of the country i'm not um, I'm not based in mexico um and so I felt like you know there was uh, there was an opportunity for me and there was a lot of people who wanted me to ask those questions that i'd been speaking to um I mean a couple of days before i visited a family in mexico state where, um, a bunch of different family members I think five different females um, women and young girls had been murdered um, the killers had got away there was it was very very little if any progress in the case itself um, and and you know people want to know like what is the government doing about it and is this even a concern um, and disturbingly AMLO the president was um, not very forthcoming I mean first he sort of tried to overlook it and ignore it and said that you know there's never been a better time to be a woman in Mexico um which was uh sort of mocked in the press that day um and and then you know went on to say that they were working on it and sort of made very vague gruntages about um about what they were doing but nothing really solid um and and also denied that they'd cut the budgets which was um worrying because, it, I mean, it just wasn't true. Um, they had cut the budgets and they it actually later on reversed some of the cut of some of the budgets um, since that press conference. So, yeah, it was a confusing message and I don't think there was much um, clarity, but I do think it was important to to bring it up with kind of the highest echelons of the government. Yeah, yeah. And, and,
0: and I, th- I don't think people in the US as much can relate to the culture if they haven't experienced like the machismo culture there in Mexico. This is a short uh, rally from the story, but uh, I was dating a girl in Mexico City and her uncle happened to be part of the cartel, at least formerly was. And she was introduced to her ex-boyfriend by her uncle, who's also part of the cartel. And this is like five, six years ago, which is why I'm able to tell it. Uh, and I'm not in Mexico, but uh, <laughs> one day he, <laughs> <That helps. laughs> yeah, well, Alamo, Bicaboomba. So, um, <laughs> anyway, so one, <laughs> one day he actually ended up a bringing a gun to her house, uh, all the way from Guadalajara, and came with his friends, and basically said that if she doesn't get back with him, he'll shoot her. Uh, it was just like a very. Uh, hard cold like look at like the way they look at relationships, I mean, jealousy is such a huge part of that culture there. it seems based on what you reported as well um yeah, it's just it's just horrifying th- some of the things that were going on, I mean this wasn't mm. even the main topic of our conversation, so we're rallying a little bit, but uh, yeah, it's um no, it's
1: interesting, it, it's um it's a real problem it's um yeah, sadly, there seems to be less and less resources to attempt to address it
0: for sure for sure yeah and, and, I, and i do think i don't know how you felt i don't know how long you were there in mexico and and how you felt in terms of uh well do people look at you as do people think that you're full asian usually or do the people think that you're uh like a mix like how, how do they how do they usually get you I mean, when you're, I, like in mexico
1: yeah i think um i mean i'm a I'm a bit of a mongrel, so I don't think people really know. A lot of people speak to me in Spanish and assume that I'm Mexican or... I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I seem to be able
1: yeah. to... I seem to be able to fit in, in in quite a lot of places. And I think, like, Latin America is somewhere I can sort of fit in without standing out too much.
0: Yeah, yeah, I was going to say it's the, the exotic look, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> well... Um, you must get so, that, too. Um, well, the reason so you, why I brought that up... You
1: more Asian than I do, but...
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Because well, you're half Asian, right?
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, well, I, I was bringing that up because um, a, a lot of the times, like, I would go there and they would be using slur words like Chino uh, directly at me or mm-hmm. even... Beside me, where they can, I can clearly hear them. And it wasn't until like I went up to them and asked them and and really confronted them that they stopped. It was almost like no one has told them uh, that was maybe tourist or something like that, that it's not okay. And they were almost shocked Mm -hmm. that I was telling them to basically shut the fuck up and not call me that. I just don't think they were used to it. So I think it goes a lot in terms of like being able to stand up for yourself. Now, obviously, it's a different situation with women because there's a physical difference there. There uh, There's a lot of differences that uh, would be much more suited for creating a system around helping them and making sure that they're taken care of. Uh, It's just a bit different, right? Mm. But um, yeah, that's something that I just thought about. Yeah,
1: that's interesting.
0: So uh, the... The main reason that I was uh, wanted to discuss with you around is you went undercover in 2019 to China, to Xinjiang, uh, to report on the mass imprisonment, that's the way we can say it, of uh, Uyghurs. Um, can you give us a overview of, of what's happening there for people that may not be familiar with it? I, a lot of my friends weren't when I was discussing it. I don't think a lot of people are still to this date. Um, yeah. Sure.
1: So there's, um, there's a Muslim minority group in China called the Uyghurs. Um, there's about 12, 13 million of them. And they live in the northwest corner of China called in a region called Xinjiang. Um, and, you know, that borders a lot of Central Asia. Um, and the Chinese government, in an attempt to assimilate them, essentially, um, has embarked on this mission to re-educate them Um, and the way they've done that is to crack down on them and to lock up over a million Uyghur Muslims into so-called re-education camps um which the U.S. government has called concentration camps um inside there they are you know taught Chinese laws they are taught um Mandarin the Chinese language they are um they're taken away from their family members. They are taught, you know, they're often prevented from practicing their religion. Um, they are, you know, assimilated in a lot of different ways. There's allegations of various different physical torture, as well as um, some cases of sexual torture inside those um, these camps. Um, so they really are an incredibly brutal way to, crackdown on an entire population.
0: And what's the reason that this is happening? Why why are the Chinese governments putting all of these people into these camps? We're talking about about a million people, right? Which is crazy.
1: Yeah. Over a million people. Um So the Chinese government would say that they are doing it because there is a security threat, a valid security threat from these Uyghurs. And over the last 10 years, I mean, there's been a handful of small-level attacks. Um, Well, there has been a handful of of attacks, some of which have come from Uyghur individuals, which has kind of acted as a catalyst and and an excuse, frankly, to crack down on them. Um, I mean, I would say that the level of the crackdown, which has just been so, so vast and so insanely huge... Um, has massively outweighed the, any potential security threat that they can say that they, um, they fear. Um, and I think in, in reality it is an attempt to, you know, the Chinese Communist Party is fearful of any otherness um, and what they're trying to do is create a um, homogenous society which is completely obedient um, to and loyal to the Chinese Communist Party
0: gotcha and what were some of those things that happened that were acting as a catalyst to Chi- to to Chinese government being able to you know use this as as a way to put these people into these camps
1: well i mean it's complex but um you know there was firstly the the war against terror from the us and from the west um since 911 uh, there's you know there has been kind of a, a global acceptance that there. Is kind of a crackdown on, frankly, Muslims, um, and and so that was kind of that was one of the catalysts um, from the Chinese Communist Party, um, and then another was, uh, you know, th- there as I said, there have been this handful of attacks. So there was one in Kunming, um, in, I think it was in. Actually, I don't even want to hazard a guess. There was one in two thousand nine. There was one in twenty fourteen. Um, there was there was also one in one in Beijing. Um, and there's been a couple in Xinjiang itself, um, which have been blamed on Uyghur separatists, huh. a group that they call the East Turkestan um, ETAm, the East, uh, e- yeah, the East Turkestan uh, militant group um, that they are blaming these attacks on, and they're saying that this warrants um, the level of the crackdown.
0: Gotcha. And are are people being forced into these detention camps? Meaning they were living as normal citizens in Xinjiang and one day these officers came into their house and dragged them a million people into these detention camps
1: yeah um you know the Xinjiang itself is the strictest surveillance state in the world right now it's you know there's when I went there, there's just security cameras everywhere. There are, you know, people are checking your phones to check that you don't, with this malware, to check that you don't haven't visited any foreign websites. There are face scanners everywhere. There's iris scanners, um, there's voice detection. There are literal, you know, people within the communities that are kind of paid to keep check on you. They're kind of government informants. Um, so firstly, it's very, you know, there's eyes and ears everywhere, essentially. Um, and then yeah they are forced you know they're taken away from their families often in the middle of the night we're told um and they're brought to these detention centers which are these huge sprawling um camps you know we first found out about them because several researchers were looking at satellite imagery um because obviously the the chinese government is very um secretive about their actions in that area in that region um, so they you know we found like hundreds of these camps just popping up um over over a matter of months and years. um and they continue to be built at the moment. Um, and you know these are very high level security prisons. essentially, you know, we've seen government documents that um that were leaked where we can see that um these are treated essentially as like very high level security. So there's layers and layers of different. Um, security there's uh you know the solitary confinement as well as um, you know put into group cells um you know you're not allowed phones you're not allowed to contact with the outside world um you are you're completely you know you're treated as a prisoner
0: yeah I mean you were even followed right when you were there
1: yeah so I mean so I went to you know I went as a as a tourist, you know we went undercover into Xinjiang, and um, and it is yeah, it is a very strict security state, and so it, it's difficult to effectively cover the region because you know journalists are obviously not welcome there unless they're on kind of an official dog and pony show around these camps where you know you see these very happy singing uh, Uyghur people inside. Um, And other than that, you know, the the Chinese government is extremely secretive about the region, so they don't want you there. So, um, yeah, when we went to Hotan, which is in Xinjiang, um, we were followed consistently. Um, And and I think that's just because any foreigner is followed. Um, And so it's kind of a a constant battle to try and figure out how we can shake our government minded loose um and how we can effectively report on the region without um putting anyone's lives at risk frankly because it's it's you know we know that people are watching our every move
0: yeah well um i actually have a uh, one of my best friends was dating a girl quite recently obviously anonymous uh who was born in xinjiang and I think she was like five or so until she had to move out, um, and I, I guess I'm curious to know like what what are the people there? Was like she the Han Uyghur? Chinese? She was, was not she a Uyghur. She was. She was Han Chinese. She, she was Han Chinese. Um, mm-hmm. I I don't think she knew what was going on, but I'm sure she was influenced by what her parents or what her grandparents. May have told her about the situation, um, which which leads me to ask: mm-hmm. What are people that are Han Chinese think about the situation that's happening right right in their own cities?
1: Um, it depends who you talk to. Um, you know, I, I've spoken to a number of Han Chinese, but it's all kind of anecdotal, and it's difficult to know what people really think because um there's not necessarily a huge amount of transparency when it comes to interacting with um with yeah. people in the region. Um I think that for for the majority I would say of the Han Chinese people that I spoke to, um, I think that they, you know, they see a lot of the propaganda, um, which is an extremely effective tool in China. And you see that, you know, um they're told and fed this information the whole time that there is a very real security threat. And so for a lot of the people, and I spoke to a lot of tourists who are visiting the area, they felt like um, you know the constant presence of police and the crackdown on the a- area was um, was really good for China, and um, it meant that they were now safe to visit these places. It um, they that the Chinese government was doing a good job in terms of assimilating them. That um, you know this is a backwards region with backwards people. Um And that the training programs, et cetera, are a way to advance the economy and to um you know bring China into uh, a very lucrative and and prosperous future um so this is all part of a you know a lot of people do back the chinese Communist party um i mean I also did meet some Han Chinese people who privately told me that they were worried about the extent of what was happening firstly for the, you know they see the economic impact of having over a million people put into camps um, and that has been severe on some business individuals. Um, and also that, you know, a lot of some some Han Chinese people told me that they were worried and that they felt it was incredibly unfair um, that so many Uyghur individuals um, which were, you know, were living side by side with Han Chinese people, um, you know, so many of them had to go away and be imprisoned and and have this incredibly harsh life um for something as simple as you know wearing a headscarf or having a beard or you know reading a quran or praying you know these are very very um basic things that these people are getting locked up for so i think for some people there is especially for people who had pre-existing relationships with Uyghur individuals there was there is a a degree of sympathy for them
0: yeah, I, I was watching the, um, uh, I forgot what the show is, but John Oliver, basically, where he was talking about some of the craziest things that they would consider uh, the terrorist extremist behavior. One of them was smoking and drinking and then quitting suddenly, uh, buying or storing equipment such as dumbbells, as you mentioned, growing a beard or or fasting. So like I would be a terrorist, I guess, if I'm fasting. Uh uh, it's it's crazy, like some of these extremist things that they're they're putting out there.
1: Yeah, yeah, it really can be anything. And on top of that, you know, they collect all this data. Um, I've seen some of the databases that they collect, which um, which is incredibly detailed um, information on each weaker in- individual. So they they know kind of you know where they live, obviously, who their family members are. So if you're related to someone who has been abroad maybe to um, to Saudi or to Turkey or to any of the risk countries then you yourself could be at risk of being imprisoned um, you know if you have prayed before or if you've visited a mosque before all these all these events are recorded um, you you know your every interaction is recorded and so you really can be there's so much risk it's you really can be put away for anything and there's so much. Fear of that that happening because you know people have families that they want to look after. There's there's, I mean, for so many reasons. Obviously, you don't want to end up in a camp.
0: Right, right. And I guess they are calling these um, centers. So they're they're calling these these, these vocational education training centers. Uh, obviously, they don't want to call it camps. H- how long are these kids and students? that are being, you know, re re educated, quote, unquote, uh, have to stay there for?
1: It depends. Um, You know, I've seen documents that suggest that they're there for a year, and then their behavior and progress is assessed, and then they go into a few months of um, vocational training. Um, And I also know of individuals that have spent years there. Um, So it depends, but it's definitely and and there's also different levels of camps. So some people go to kind of camps that aren't as um, as high level and sometimes you know they are allowed in and out to go to work and sometimes they're allowed to have family members visit them. but um, but for the most part, I would it's a long- term endeavor to you know retrain and literally brainwash is one of the terms that they use um, of of these individuals that they're sending there.
0: Gotcha. So there's different levels of how severe of a retraining or re-education that you would need to get. I I would imagine age is probably one of them because often when you're older, it's it's hard to rewire your brain after a certain point. Um, Are there other factors to it?
1: Yeah, actually, I mean, some of the younger men especially are considered higher risk um, because they, you know, they, um, yeah, they, they might be, more likely to uh, partake in extremist activities, um, so yeah, it, it depends. Um, but yeah, I think that from what I understand, there's also um, the, the you know the, their progress is constantly monitored, and you know if they kind of pass these various tests and show complete obedience and their behaviour is in line with the Chinese Communist Party, um, then they might be. They might be released. But I would say that also when they're released, um, you know, they have people keeping an eye on them at all times. We've also seen accounts of Chinese Communist Party cages going to live with Uyghur families to really keep an extremely close eye on them. Um, you know, if, if people, there's reports of if people, if Uyghur individuals refuse to eat pork, then that is reported back to um you know the local government authorities um and that's seen as a, a a um a flag um which could end you back up in the camp
0: oh my god so i imagine they're just forcing these people to eat porks despite yeah, yeah we definitely yeah.
1: yeah we've heard of um i mean i've spoken to individuals who told me that they were forced to eat pork
0: oh my god that's insane
1: and to drink alcohol
0: and to drink alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, now, were you able to speak with any of the Uyghurs that may have been inside before or, or inside even today or family members of those people that are inside today to get an idea of what is a daily life there and what are some of the things that they're being taught and some of the things that are being violated, anything around there that you may have gotten?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, we were able to, I mean, I went to, I'm in contact with a lot of bigger individuals who live outside of China at the moment. So um, there's quite a lot in Turkey. There's also some in Kazakhstan or a few in Kazakhstan. There's um, a few scattered around Europe and a few in America. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I was able to talk to to quite a lot of them. Um, The individuals who'd been, who'd spent time inside the camps, I mean, they all um, testified to, Incredibly harsh conditions um, that sounded really, really traumatic. Um, you know, some of the women told me about uh, being forced to take pills that they didn't know what they were. Um, they didn't know if they were birth control. They didn't know if they were sedation. But they they were they claimed to have been forced to have taken pills. Um, you know, there there was hours and hours of um, reciting the same Chinese Communist Party laws and songs. Um, A lot of them knew the same songs and the same, um, the same kind of doctrine um, that they were all given. Um,
0: Is this like the Chinese anthem? uh,
1: There's a song that essentially goes, uh, without the Chinese Communist Party, there is no new China. Um, I can't remember the rest of the lyrics, but uh, it's not the Chinese anthem, although there's also one person told me that they were also um, asked to recite the Chinese anthem. Um, yeah, and uh, and just like hours and hours of kind of sitting and um, listening to to lectures on on how great the Communist Party is and how loyal they must be and denouncing um, extremism and denouncing terrorism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of people told me of how terrible the food was, how um they were physically abused by uh guards who were there um some of them told me they were asked to return to communities and spy on their neighbors and on their communities themselves um which i think is one of the harshest practices because you know obviously it's tearing the weaker communities up themselves um so yeah it sounds like i mean just story after story of like really devastating um really, really harsh conditions. Um and then for the family members who, you know, almost every Uyghur person I speak to who lives outside of China has family members that they believe are inside the camps. I mean if you go to I was at a Uyghur restaurant the other day in Boston and um I was talking to the family there and they, you know, the owner has her father inside a camp um and her brother and other family members that she just hasn't heard of who she assumes might have been inside the camps and, or who just don't know because the other thing is you're not really allowed to be, or you're not allowed to be in contact with people outside of the country because otherwise it's, um, you know, it's very risky because that is a sign of, um, you know, questionable activities, which could end you you up in a camp. So, I mean, just the, yeah, the way that it's kind of tearing apart of the fabric of families and, um, and Uyghur culture is just really, really devastating. My God. Yeah.
0: What's the food that they serve there in a Uyghur restaurant?
1: In a Uyghur restaurant? I mean, the Uyghur food is great. Um, I I actually love Uyghur food. There's a lot of, um, there's like Xinjiang ramen, which is like um, the pulled noodles, um, like the homemade pulled noodles where they serve that. Actually, someone there told me it was the, the original spaghetti bolognese um, until uh, Marco Polo brought it back to Italy and introduced it there. Is that um, right? They, <laughs> I haven't fact-checked that.
0: <laughs> um, I just assume that's true. Well, it's, yeah,
1: it's really delicious. They use a lot of tomatoes and um, mutton or lamb and onions. It's uh, it's really good. They also have these um, these roasted buns uh which are all, they use a lot of mutton so they have like roasted buns of mutton inside um what else um a lot of uh cow rolls so like um roasted uh like kebabs they're really delicious Ooh. Mm. so
0: when, when you're there in Xinjiang maybe not so much now but there there is such a very distinct culture right i mean you're you're talking about almost completely different cultures that existed decades ago. And do you find that now, when you're there, it's almost commingled because of how much the Chinese government is trying to diminish the culture there for Uyghurs?
1: Yes. um, I mean, I was actually, I first went there about 12 years ago as a tourist um, just to see what it was like. And I was really struck at how, um central asian it felt you know it, it really felt very similar to to getting a lot across to a lot of the central asian countries um it's you know they have a different language they have a different um culture um you know often a different religion um so yeah and now i mean there has been a real effort over the last decade or so for the Chinese government to, you know, provide incentives to um, move Han Chinese people to the region. So there's a lot of um, marriages between between the um, Uyghurs and the Han Chinese, um, and there's also a lot of um, forced assimilation, frankly. Um, so, yeah, you're seeing a lot more kind of um, where it was kind of 80% Uyghurs now kind of 50-50 and, um, you know, those gaps getting smaller and smaller, which is... Um, I'm guessing the, the the goal from the beginning
0: my god now as, as someone that is going in there to report this and really the face of this in many ways of of you know, broadcasting this for Vice uh, I know you were living in China before this How, what is the relationship that you feel there with China now now that you're seeing some of the obviously the corruption, some of these things that are happening. And, and and second, are you able to go back there after reporting something like this and, and revealing some of the stuff that you revealed in the documentary?
1: Um, I mean, firstly, I, yeah, I lived in China for four years. I love China. I, you know, have strong familial ties there and I, you know, um, lived there for a while and I have great friends there and, um, I think that there's incredible things that the country has done um, and I'm still eagerly watching it and I would love to go back.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry I asked this question. Okay.
1: (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) I love
0: China too, by the way. Just putting out that out there. (laughs) Moving oh, yeah. on um, yeah. <laughs> or, or, or keep going.
1: No, no, we can move on.
0: <laughs> we move on. Yeah. Um, so we, we had Dan Harris on. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar. He, he worked for ABC uh, and he was a I read his book war. The other it was great. 10% happier.
1: Yeah.
0: Great book. Yeah. I'm using yeah. his uh, meditation app uh, on and off with, with calm. Have you been using That's the right. app as well?
1: No, I use Insight Timer, which I quite
0: like. Insight Timer. Okay. Yeah,
1: it's another meditation app. It's
0: good. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Maybe I'll check that out, Insight Timer. Um, but he had a similar, uh, I guess, start now. He's mostly focusing on 10% Happier and writing new books and stuff. But he spent years in, in Iraq, Palestine, Israel, you know, right after the 9 11 uh, events that happened. And he was talking to me about just the lifestyle of, uh, I guess, like a reporter or correspondent there in these dangerous moments where he said the adrenaline gets so addicting and it's, for him at least, becomes this fix that you need where like the place of chaos becomes the norm. And he was talking about this event that happened where he came back to the US and he was constantly in just this bad mood and almost depressed to a certain point. And he started doing like recreational drugs and stuff. And he goes back to Palestine where like the first thing that happens, he witnesses a gunfight between these two Palestinians. Uh, and he's staying in a street with like active bombs that are hitting. And he realized like he was no longer in a bad mood. And he was he, he was basically addicted to this lifestyle. And this was where he felt happiest. I know you've been into Aleppo, you've been into Xinjiang, you've been into all these places where, particularly as a as a as a woman, it's a place of great danger and threat. You know, wh- when you go back into uh, New York or the UK, uh, you know, what's it like to live a, a you know quote unquote normal life? Where this time, this is Corona times, but normal life uh, compared to the things that you've seen, do you feel level of detachment in any way uh how do you feel about this compared to what dan was explaining
1: yeah i think i mean i really appreciated dan's book because i felt like he was very honest um and i think that you know a lot of uh war correspondents or people who cover conflict um are not so honest about that feeling of adrenaline being one of the driving factors for doing this work frankly um and there's definitely an element of that I think that um you know often I've got better at it recently um but certainly for the last you know six seven years that I've been doing this work I think that often I would come back from these places and be really just frankly pretty unpleasant to be around um uh for my family for my friends for my boyfriend um you know there's just an anxiousness that is very difficult to explain but it's kind of i think it comes from a place of yeah just seeing like being driven by that adrenaline all the time and the excitement all the time and like and also you know you do feel like you're you're delivering a service and you feel like the work is really important and it's important to get these stories and to speak to these people at the heart of these like extremely difficult and intense moments um and and then you come back and you know you go to a dinner party and people are talking about kim kardashian and it's really difficult to get on board with that and it's also difficult to like you know even engage in a conversation i remember like going to my friend's house once when i come back from um, an assignment and they were talking about what they'd done that weekend and you know i'd just been to yemen and watched young babies die in front of me and it's just not something that it's not something you can drop into casual conversation um and you also don't want to be that person that was like oh when I was in Yemen um yeah
0: yeah that's that's a tough balance (laughs) right (laughs) it's It's like yeah yeah I know exactly Um, what you mean yeah
1: but then there's also this drive inside this desire inside you to want to talk about it because you need to process it in some way um so I mean I've got I've got a therapist and um I've got a lot better at kind of leaning on her to talk about these things and um i mean i was diagnosed with ptsd and i think that like a lot of that a lot of a lot of that kind of long term impact comes from just not really knowing how to process it in the moment because you kind of at the moment you're like you're in it and you're you know you're getting the story and it's so important etc cetera, etc cetera, and so you're not really processing any of it and then when you come back you just have to fit in back into normal life and so i think it's basically really important to you know switch off sometimes and take a step back and and figure out how to process it and who it is that you can lean on to to talk about these things with
0: and and it's it's great that you're (laughs) self-aware no i I don't know if there is a right answer um to be honest i guess it's an ongoing journey for you but it's 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 great that you're self-aware of it now of you know uh, after 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 all these years and does that affect or how does that affect projects you take on in the future because i would imagine now you have this almost dilemma of being able to you know especially as you progress into your career there are only a few people that i would imagine to be able to report at that level that you can so i imagine you're being called in all these different directions to report and go to these places live and to create these shows yet at the same time i imagine you're having this push and pull factor where you want to make sure you're mentally you know, okay and, and, and taken care of and you probably want breaks amongst going from Aleppo to Xinjiang and all these different places, how have you been able to deal with that level of ambition that you have but also self-care?
1: Mm. Yeah, I'm still figuring that out. Um, it's definitely a challenge. I think that I, for one, have finally realized also that it's not necessarily... You don't have to go to a dangerous place in order to make a good story. Um, I think that I've got a better balance of, you know, I, I only want to go and do the stories that um, that really matter and that I feel like I can really um, deliver something new on and important on and relevant. Um, I think I used to sometimes go to places just because I could and because um, you know it was exciting and because my bosses were asking me to. And now I think like, I really, I really think about the story and I really, um, I really make sure that I can deliver something interesting and, um, exciting and do, do it justice. Um, and then, you know, I, yeah, I, when I am off, I actually take time off now, which is, I think, important. Um, I mean, it's been is harder to a new this thing year. for you? Yeah, I, I'm, you know, I'm a workaholic and I, uh, I really struggle sometimes to to take time off which is part of the reason I moved to the UK because I feel like now I'm my brother lives 10 minutes away my sister lives 10 minutes away um I live with my boyfriend it's really it, it for once I feel like I have a bit of a base and a bit of a yeah a, a, a bit more grounded um and you know I've lived in a you know I graduated and then moved to China and then I moved to the US and um and I've lived all over and so I feel like you know, when I was coming back from those trips, it wasn't necessarily coming home. It was just kind of coming to a base to like refuel so that I can get out the door again. Um, and I think that now I've got a little bit better at having some work-life balance. Although my boyfriend would probably disagree with that. But. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I imagine you're not the norm, right? So it's, it's, for you, what a work-life balance is probably very, very different for yeah. a normal person. You know of how they would define it, but I, yeah, I get what you really mean.
1: Shit I, I, to be in a relationship with someone who does this work. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it sounds exciting, but yeah, yeah maybe the re- maybe the reality is uh, it's it's difficult to balance that. But um, yeah, yeah, I'm sh- I'm sure if you have two independent, self reassuring, confident people that are okay being themselves, then it can work out. But if one mm-hmm. person is I don't know if you know, like, the attachment styles, like being anxious person, secure. Um, yeah. What's the other one? Anxiety, whatever, whatever yeah. it might be. But yeah.
1: Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, it's just obviously this kind of work obviously pushes that to the limits because you're away all the time. And, you know, you're often in places where you can't talk or and you're seeing very intense things. And then, you know, it's, it's difficult.
0: It is, yeah. And it's a tough mental balance. I, I know what you mean because I also traveled from Korea to Canada and then I lived in South America for about two years. Uh, and about every three to four months I would be in a new city and I realized like, speaking to someone that I associated uh, living, uh, moving, flying on a plane associated with personal growth because every time I moved in my childhood, I realized that I was entering a very different chapter in a positive way And it prevents me sometimes from being in one place, which is not always bad, but it's tough for relationships and stuff like that. I don't know if you have some sort of association with that from your childhood based on the career that you've decided to take, like risking your life and reporting all of these things.
1: Mm. I mean, I had a very sort of grounded childhood. I, you know, grew up in southern england um my dad was kind of a lot of the time was working in china um so we you know we'd go back and forth there every year but um i was so desperate to get out which i think is partly what drove me to do this work i was very curious about the world i found life in southern england so boring and i just <laughs> wanted bad, to travel i <laughs> know <laughs> <laughs> um, I just wanted to travel and I just wanted to get out and see the world and I knew there was so much more out there. So I think if anything, yeah, it, it, when my mom, my mom traveled a lot as a kid, so I think that, um, what she wanted was to feel grounded and to like make sure her kids had a grounded childhood and, and she did and delivered so well on that. But then, you know, as a result, it just made me itching to get out there.
0: Gotcha. Um I, I do before we end I I would do want to end off with talking about Aleppo Syria a little bit. I know that was a, sure. a a big you know thing that you were reporting on as well. I one of my best friends is also Syrian and has a lot of friends uh, a lot of families there. Uh so this is definitely something I want to discuss. Um it can for people that aren't aware, can you give a brief history of of why Aleppo is so part like so such a core uh, region that people are talking about and and, and why it's important. Uh,
1: um. So Aleppo is but... Yeah, that's a long one. <laughs> I, I, know, I guess I I'll just <laughs> just um, briefly. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just summarize by saying it's in a very strategically important place um, for the Syrian government as well as for the rebels who are fighting to hold on to it. Um, and it was a An important battleground um, that was fought over for a long time, Um, and uh, you know, I was I I visited there in twenty. I want to say twenty sixteen, twenty. I think twenty sixteen. I was able to go into government-held Syria. uh, Yeah, government-held Syria. and travelled around a bit to Latakia, to Homs, to um, which had just been taken back by the government, um, to Damascus, and to Aleppo, which was still being fought over. Um, and we went to the government-held area of Aleppo, um, and uh, they were still fighting the rebels, who were who were kind of, you know, lost it soon after we left. Um, so, it, and it was a really important win for the regime because you know president assad has uh sworn since the since the arab spring um which is almost a decade ago now to take back every inch of the country and so this was a really really important win for president assad
0: right right so the rebels have they basically been classified as as defeated at this point by the government and the people
1: um it depends who you talk to um you know there's the a lot of the majority of syria has been taken back by the government um there's still idlib Id, the area of idlib province um which cuz kind of you know along the near the border of turkey um is still under the control of a rebel faction um hts which uh is kind of a a, a mishmash of different groups and people and a lot of the civilians have also been pushed into that kind of corner um but most of the rest of the country has been taken back yeah
0: right and it seems like based on some of the reportings that you seen that you've shared is is that a lot of people are actually more scared of the government than the rebels themselves in many ways
1: yeah um i would say that's true um for a lot of people um i mean it's again it's you know it's kind of what we were talking about with china it's hard to know in a a really authoritarian country um because people aren't you know there's this incredible acquiescence from the population for people who are living in government-held areas but then you don't know to what extent people are telling the truth about how they feel or just you know it's way too risky for them to to um to tell you their personal truth Um, or to share any criticism of the government because it's a very unforgiving government. Um, And we've seen thousands of people disappeared. We've seen thousands of people locked up in these sprawling prisons. We've seen thousands of people killed and executed, separated from their families. Um, So, yeah. And that was one of the reasons that we wanted to go into government health areas to try and figure out where that balance lies and where people's loyalties really lie and whether people really believe the the propaganda machine that is um, that is operating so effectively there, or you know whether people are just keeping their heads down and keeping quiet. And I don't gotcha. know the answers necessarily. <laughs> I think it depends.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it reminds me of like Sinaloa in, in Mexico and the cartel there, where you'll see a lot of people that are living there in these residences describe the cartels uh, as more welcoming and they actually. Don't mind that these cartels are running the show because it brings some sort of, I guess, uh, ser- serenity or it just kind of puts things in order versus when the government takes over. Um, so, so, like, I wasn't surprised, I guess, wh- when they said that. Um, but I also know, you know, Assad and there's just such a authoritarian look at. It. I know you went on this Syrian pro regime network, by the way. This, that was pretty badass what you did. I don't know if that was the plan. <laughs> going in we'll definitely link that up where you just basically straight up called these uh these people out and was that edited i don't know if i was watching the right one but it just it was complete silence basically based on the film that i saw it was like rfsmediaoffice.com
1: yeah uh, i wish it was edited because it was like the world's most no but it wasn't it was like the world's most awkward silence. <laughs> um and also the other thing was it was live tv so i had um oh my god i had their producer in my ear uh telling me to move on and to stop asking questions myself um so yeah it was yeah <laughs> it was pretty awkward um but i oh guess what it god. showed was you know what it showed was that and and i had a talk with the one of the tv hosts afterwards and it really showed that you know these people were incredibly loyal to the government and that they did believe that the assad's government was fighting terrorists who wanted to take over their country um and that you know the work that they were doing was to spread assad's message which was a positive one that they were going to get the government the country back in in shape and to take it back and take control etc and they did not believe or um you know think at all that the, the images that we've seen are, and that we know are true of civilians being attacked with chemical weapons um, were real at all. You know, they, they thought that it was um, entirely terrorists that the government was fighting.
0: In the setting that you were talking to them, was it like off camera, off the record, you were having drinks or, or dinner, or whatever like that. And this so, is their honest I- opinion?
1: Yeah, I spoke to, well, when we're talking about the TV host in particular, like one of the guys I spoke to, I spent some considerable time with him, actually, because I was just really wanted to know where his head was at. Um, And I spoke to him on camera, I spoke to him off camera, um, in private and in public. And his message is always the same, which is that he completely believed and was aligned with the the Syrian government and the Syrian regime, and that his work was to help um, spread that positive message.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. Well, Isabel, uh, I really respect your time, um, and I appreciate you for making the time to to do this. Despite, uh, uh, well, also the work that you're doing. More, more importantly, despite the mental difficulties that it can it can spawn. Um, and and as, as I mentioned, I've spoken with guests like Dan that's gone through this. So we really appreciate the work that you're doing. What are some of the no, things? that... Thank you that... very much. Yeah, of course. It's really um, kind of therapeutic things-
1: to talk about it as well,
0: actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I would imagine it's um I don't know if you I don't know if you talk about this stuff kind of stuff a lot, but it's uh yeah, it's 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 I, I just can't even imagine. That's a thing. I was just curious to know how you think about it and what your mentality is in terms of balancing that, because I imagine you th- look at it as your life work like this is something you have through all of your life experience of the world that you've traveled you being you know multicultural as well um, although we got to get improve your spanish a little bit but apart from that <laughs> <laughs> i I, I imagine this is yeah i imagine that you see this as your life work but you, you have this this um yeah, this other thing pulling you, which is your your brain, your your mental health, and, and I imagine you know all these things that you want to do um, with your personal life. But yeah, we we appreciate nevertheless the things that you do and and the work that you're putting out there. Um, and congratulations on the on the two Emmys uh, and, the, and the Gracie Award. Um, Thank you very much. What are the things that you're excited about for? What's coming up in 2021? Are there any things that you can hint on that you're working on of reporting?
1: Um yeah, I don't know how much I should talk about it, but I mean there's a few projects that I'm excited about. Um I mean, firstly, frankly, I'm excited that, you know, with this new administration coming in, I'm hoping that there'll be less obsessiveness from U.S. media over Trump's every tweets, and you know, I think in general, but especially over the last few years, we've seen um, a real inward lookingness from um, the U.S. media, and from and understandably because it's just been such an insanity roller coaster. So I think that hopefully, you know, people will start to care about what goes on outside of U.S. borders again, um, and. I think that you know, if this year especially has proven anything, it's that we are more interconnected than we we know, and that what happens on the other side of the world in a place like I don't know China, does really impact what happens on our home turf. And so I think that we really need to pay attention to that and not kind of willfully close our eyes to to these events. Um, so having said that, I mean, I'm you know I obviously care about China and the U.S.-China relationship is extremely interesting at the moment um, to see where that goes um, we don't have true clarity over that with the Biden administration um, so I'm uh, that's something that I'll be following um, and I will be following kind of you know China's global expansion and how that shapes up um, and uh, yeah there's a few other things but I um, I'm kind of developing and working on them at the moment and trying to figure out where they go
0: Cool, cool. Where, where can people follow along when it is announced? I imagine Vice, of course, but for your own personal media, I guess.
1: Thank you. Yeah, definitely.
0: Okay, cool. All right, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thank you so much, Thank Isabelle. you so
1: much, Sean. Nice to meet it's you. It's
0: talking to you. And, Take care. Uh, and we'll see you guys soon. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao